0: you are listening to the evolution exchange nhs podcast we shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the nhs i'm thomas lyon and i help connect digital leaders in the nhs with interim talent and i am your host the views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organization Welcome everyone to today's podcast focusing on uh, PMO within the NHS so thank you all for taking the time to participate you know it's very much appreciated Uh, you all know me but by way of introduction I'm Thomas Lyon I work for Evolution Recruitment in the NHS team and we're committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential to bring that to life our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals building trust to make doing business easier and what we're doing. So we're collaborating with NHS organisations, helping them build high performance digital teams and how we're doing that. We do that through curating and sharing insights and industry best practices, the ever evolving NHS and digital industry. So that's exactly what we're going to be discussing today uh, as we share some of your insights from your individual perspective. So first off, what we'll do is we'll go around, we'll do introductions. So if you could start by please introducing yourself. Uh, the trust you work for and your role within that trust. Uh, Noel, as you were first in the in the podcast, would you mind kickstarting, please?
1: So I'm Noel Burkett. I am the Director of Transformation Improvement and PMO at the Hillington's Hospitals. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Craig, would you like to go next?
2: So I'm Craig Brown. I'm the Head of Elective Transformation at London Northwest Hospitals.
0: Brilliant, thank you. And Ralph, last not least, would you like to go next, please?
3: And I'm Ralph Elias. I'm the head of planning at uh, London Northwest Healthcare.
0: Good. Thank you very much. So thank you everyone for introductions. Appreciate you all very familiar with Teams. And uh, for a better flow of the podcast, if you could please raise your hand through uh, when you'd like to add something or make a point, and then I'll come to you when possible. So you've all sent me some excellent questions, so thank you very much for that. Um, I'd like to invite Noel to ask his question. So Noel has basically asked, uh, what do you think is the most challenging thing for PMO in the future? Noel, would you like to elaborate on that before I direct it to the rest of the panel, please?
1: Well, I mean, elaboration is uh, you're looking at the um, stand-up of the integrated care systems and the challenges. Is how does the PMO fit within that model and what does it bring to the table? You know. You know, and then also in a world that's challenged through the financial situations and stuff like that, PMO is one of those easy things to say, you know, you know, do you invest in that area or not? So to me, there is just something going on around the discussion in systems and stuff about, you know, what is the PMO of the future look like? You know, what are the challenges it's going to face? And are they really different than the challenges that it has now? I mean, you know, my view is that I don't think it is. I mean, I think the challenges are around an organization fully understanding the value of project management and project management team and what they bring, because I don't think they they always fully see that, you know, fully understanding how they help people get away from the resistance to change and then the ability to adopt new ways to do stuff. And I think that's the key. And then also about you know, resource management and how to use resources, um, project management resources appropriately to help deliver um, more successfully the type of transformation that's needed. So that's kind of was my perspective of it.
0: Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that, Noel. Um, so Craig, would you like to go first? And what, what do you have to say to what Noel's out to the group?
2: Yeah. So I agree with Noel. I think the basic function of a PMO will will always remain. You, ne- you need individuals who are able to su- support change Uh, and significant change, Uh, what I think the challenge will be going, even in the short term, over the next couple of years, will be the horizons at which that change is happening. So, for example, in the sector in which we work, so Noel uh, at Hillingdon and us at London Northwest were sort of uh, neighbours, we're only separated by a few few miles, Uh, but we will equally have our own internal PMOs, but equally there'll be a system-led PMO, there might be an ICS PMO, and so I suppose the challenge that the nhs will certainly face is the horizon and the expansion of the scope of what a pmo should cover and and how much overlap there may be between organizations so we're already looking at some levels of collaboration to see if there's opportunities between organizations where we can share resource and insights and even joint procurement on certain um certain change projects that we need to go in on but i think the big challenge will actually be the scope and scale of the pmos And where you actually start to draw your lines around what belongs to the organization or even just internally to a division versus what happens at a system level Um, because what you don't want to do is replicate lots of pmo functions
0: okay Okay. brilliant Uh, and ralph what would you like to add to that
2: so
3: so i I agree with a lot of the points that that, that craig's made and almost that there's some of the points that seem to be in the question itself but uh, I think that there's a, having worked through a whole variety of different projects and also organizations in, in different positions, uh, and also seen sort of a, a variety of levels of, of sector influence over processes. So, this point about having multiple kind of PMOs operating in the same environment. Uh, that there is a sort of list of challenges that it brings. And I, I'm not sure that there's a sort of single, um, single answer for any of these things anyway. It sort of gets, uh, Craig alluded to size. So uh, on the one hand, uh, what they can bring is, is discipline. They can bring uh, the ability to, to have insight into what is happening, uh, into progress. And, and give you a real handle on uh, on what is happening. Of course, the more you want to understand what's going on, the more of an industry they can become. And when you're in an environment where you do, as I say, have sort of multiple PMO functions, there you can rapidly get to a place where, where it, it becomes an industry. And also it, it, it then really takes away quite limited capacity and I I suppose the examples to me are um, PMOs that are set up with all the right intentions for all the right reasons Um, but we then find ourselves moving into into an environment where they're very very intense short-term pressures which is I think exactly what's coming now and uh, uh, and Noel sort of alluded to, you know, the financial pressures alone we can see coming, but recovery pressures and so on. So there, there's something around. You then get into a position where the PMO, when they're quite large, have have a sort of almost a drag on the system, and then they're not seen as responsive. And actually, that can sort of lead to a temptation to then go completely outside of the program, so that sort of PMOs working in one. Uh, and in, in, in one sort of narrative and then, you know, reality is going off on a tangent. So I, I think there is a real challenge to sizing them correctly. Um, and then you can you can quite quickly get into questions about, you know, how much value are they adding? And, and to what extent are we allowing our organizations to kind of focus on doing things as opposed to reporting on doing things? So it's so a bit of a sort of ramble. but. Um, there's some real challenges about operating in, in, in systems where kind of priorities are changing quite quickly, but actually what we need is, is sort of consistency and stability and insight, which are all things that maybe would be helped if people were uh, more sort of familiar with PMO. It does feel to me like often when we set up PMOs, uh, you get the impression that many of your colleagues have kind of never experienced this before, even though they have. So uh, I'll stop there. I'm sure we'll come back to some of these points.
0: <laughs> yes, we definitely will. Definitely will. I see Noel nodding away, and obviously it was Noel's point. So I would like to go back to Noel and see what his thoughts are.
1: Well, I think that there's a very valid piece there that both Craig and Ralph has brought up and that's about the PMO and the the getting making sure that the traditional piece of what a PMO needs to do never is lost in the challenges. And that is around, you know, making sure you have that that structure, that governance structure, the the, the milestones, the gateways, those types of timelines, that reporting and monitoring you know managing the quality managing the risk um, you know making sure there's communication plans so those core things that they, they they never need to lose because they they are what enhances the delivery you know and, and stuff you know you know people get you know, frustrated about managing change control of, you know, projects and things like that, but actually, there's a real reason why you're doing that, so you can understand what's going on. So if it does fail, you can understand, you know, what failed and you understand where it happened. So I think there's some key things about that core. I think to me that the, the other piece that is in that is how you change the PMO as well to be more agile and flexible. And I think that is sometimes hard for the PMO, but I also things hard for the organization as well. You know, uh, and and that's the tough part because the PMO needs to be very agile. It can't be you know it can't be very robust methodology that is that is doesn't move you know it can't we don't run a construct we're not running construction sites so it can't be left to right very very rigid very hard it's got to be able to flex and move with the change and our other model has to be is it's, it's kind of like an ebb and flow because of the way stuff works around the nhs is that sometimes push on a project but then you might need deposit because of other things going on but you move that resource around and that's that's the key point because resource is very limited but other piece to what Ian said I think is very important is around how in the system we collaborate in a way that if we have a PMO expert or an expert in let's say outpatient services well if they work for me and and we see them as the person that actually can help us and do that in with Craig then I don't need to keep that resource to me. I need to just go to Craig and hey, here's your a resource to help you do that because that's how we actually collaborate and make success is using people's subject matter expertise. So if we, for example, have somebody that's really brilliant about risk management, let's don't just cover that into a corner. Let's use that across the system and get away from these silos of working in the organization, but actually work across. And that's what really we're promoting. And I'll go into some of the other discussions we we'll have later on.
0: No, brilliant. Thank you for that. No, see, raise your hand, Craig. Would you like to? Uh, add on to that.
2: Yeah, so so I I agree with role with no. We need to look at roles across across organisations. But I suppose coming back to Ralph's point, and maybe and, and Noel touched on this a little bit as well. If we're going to look at this in terms of uh, where we're at in the NHS and our financial challenges within our systems at the minute, actually one of the things that we could be seeking to explore is actually strengthening the accountability of a pmo or at least the accountability of the execs to the pmo because if the pmo is is demonstrating that actually there is no benefit if the, one of the milestones is not being hit or a gateway is not being passed in terms of the threshold of feasibility for example then there needs to be more rigor about stopping pieces of work that are not proving to be beneficial uh, and I'm not sure the NHS has always been particularly <laughs> helpful because we tend to get started with stuff and then never stop it uh, until it just drives off and actually the PMO of the future you could argue needs to have more teeth to be able to evaluate things faster uh, and certainly test the f- and, and, and maybe it's about feasibility testing initially but there's something about making sure that we are financially accountable to ta- because we are taxpayers that we're not just throwing more and more money into large-scale programs simply moving milestones and manipulating gateways in order to try and keep flogging something that doesn't feel as if it's benefiting us and i think that that's there's always the tension that every project will have as to where you draw that line but in the age in which we're coming into and over the next few years of accountability maybe the pmo of the future is one that has more teeth
0: it's very interesting. I see, Ralph. You had your hand raised first. Let's like go to you first, please. You're on mute.
3: And it, more to to sort of add a point for me in terms of this this business of the sort of sharing skills um, and collaborating. One of the quite consistent uh, challenge, I guess, I've I've had and seen over the years is. You know, really understanding exactly what the function of the PMOs are. And I mean, that in the sort of broadest sense, the understanding of organisation. So particularly when when the programmes are large, when there's a lot of resource around the PMOs are quite substantial, you then find individuals moving more and more into roles that are really delivery type roles, where you then have to question the extent to which they're, they're sort of taking responsibility for things that actually sit and certainly at the moment, I'm in the hospital. So, you know, the, the primary responsibility is going to be with the divisions or with some of the corporate functions to, to sort of drive some of these changes through. And often that then is seen as becoming the responsibility of people within the PMO. So so it's it's very hard uh, to sort of then disentangle that. And and I often come across, well, the the responsibility is sort of comes to Craig's point, the responsibility suddenly seems to be sitting within the PMO to deliver things. So it, it sort of partly comes from the point made about, well, I've got an outpatient expert well is it an outpatient is it PMO expertise that I've got or if it's if it's sort of SME expertise that's sort of slightly different to me and I, I do feel that we we have real challenges here I, I certainly see it in obviously I'm working with Craig at the moment I see it in his team people sort of pointing to Craig to say well how are we getting you know when, when is this outpatient work stream going to start delivering you think well that's not his service he, he's supporting you in a mixture of an SME capacity and sort of PMO support. So, uh, it's a sort of roundabout way of saying uh, there are real challenges about uh, holding people to account for delivering. And obviously PMO helps articulate that and point to where they can act to get back on track and provide them with sort of professional help around that. But I, I do worry a lot about stepping
1: too much into the delivery end. Oh. Okay, brilliant.
0: Thank you for that, Ralph. No, I've been you in one season for a while. Would you like to go?
1: No, I was going to say, and I absolutely agree with Ralph on that, actually. It's one of the problems we have is that we, you know, we, we're not the delivery arm of it. We, we're helping them set up a program for success. And I think you, that does get lost where people look you know I mean that people like me and Craig say well you know why hasn't this delivered?" we're going well wait a minute you know that's not our responsibility we will set it up but I think it also goes back to something Craig said was we have to be the honest brokers to say if it's failing you know so we have to be able to monitor and say you know it's failing so if we haven't raised that risk we've we failed to do that but we do end up for some reason you know getting a lot of responsibility that why isn't it delivering we say wait a minute our responsibility is not to deliver it you know our responsibility is to set up a program and to push and check and challenge the you know organization and the leaders' the organization on the delivery of that. And I think that's the piece to miss. The other piece for me that's in there that we are that I don't think we do. We're, we we need to be a change catalyst. You know, we need to spark the the piece of you know we look in you know the different types of mechanisms we have where model hospital NHS benchmarking GERF, Doctor Foster whatever it is. We need to be able to look in there and go look you know we've got a problem we need to address it or there's a trend going on in ed that we need to tackle and and, and, and so we, we represent that back to the organization give them some prioritization but the organization's got to decide what's that thing that they want to go after and they do that it shouldn't be the Pmo but I think sometimes people look at the PMO and go hey PMO we need to deliver this cash savings you tell us what the priority should be and we go well, wait a minute we can only tell you what the opportunity is that you you know you run the operation you may be able to say what well, actually is a quick win or there's something that's going to be more difficult because of structure etc we don't necessarily have that knowledge but yeah brilliant
0: no thank you for that is there anything else that anyone like to add to that no brilliant um uh, no it's a good question it's definitely raised a lot when i saw this one you know what's the most challenging thing for pmo in the future i just knew it would it would provoke quite a lot of conversation i think this ties nicely into craig's question so craig has asked you know how do we develop the workforce for the future pmo craig, would you like to elaborate on that before i direct it to the rest of the panel please
2: Yeah, so so this is this is a very live conversation, I think, within Northwest London at the minute. We held um, a recent sort of away day for for, for a significant amount of the the sector and and the various individuals involved in both transformation and. Well, transformation is an interesting one in and of itself, but there is a subset within that you could argue with PMO. So where those two start and stop is is blurred. But the key thing is the people who go into these jobs it's very difficult. It's it's quite opaque about their career progression and their skill set development in order to sort of move up through the system. And so, you know, I'm really interested in how we develop staff. What does that look like? Is there, are there models which we can draw on from our clinical colleagues, for example, where there is actually a very clear career path for people with skills and a development framework, which is, um, you know, which is coherent across a sort of a large scale, if not sort of a national agenda. So I know that there are, you know, there's Prince too, and there's Agile, and you can go and be, you know, MSP and so on. You can do these programmes in isolation, but actually in terms of day-to-day growth and sort of even an extension of that within a within a HEI, so a diploma, some master's and so on, how do we build that into our workforce so that they do, when they come into a PMO, they know how they're going to progress from band – sixes to sevens to eights and so on in that framework because I, I think it's a bit haphazard for our staff currently and often they have to leave to get better experience because we aren't really transparent about what the skills are that you need to progress so I think that there's an opportunity here for us as a sector to develop something quite robust.
0: No thank you for that That's a really good point and I'd like to direct that first to Ralph if you don't mind.
3: Yeah, so, so I've sort of a couple of thoughts really. One is around the, these really ought to be sort of core skills for for many of our staff. So I'm I'm very taken by what I've seen in 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 uh, certainly the sort of the higher performing organisations and and also the ones that we're we're sort of constantly reminded about in 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 the QI world. Around uh, sort of big efforts at an organisational level to develop improvement skills, and I, I guess I would add this to that. So I do think, and it's not just about uh, some the the occasional course. I do think a, a really thorough grounding in project management, which would include spells spent in a in a in a, a well-run PMO environment, are pretty important. and I would certainly think that most people that are running through the sort of operational uh, uh, management route should have some experience with that. So I do think there's a place for us to sort of internally circulate people through different types of roles as part of their career development, which of course we generally don't do. I mean, I, I pre-NHS I worked in the mining sector and there it was much more structured. So many companies have a much more structured approach to what functions they will put people through in order to develop them as kind of rounded uh, individuals. Uh, so there's something about what 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 do we do through cycling people through. Then there's a sort of slightly separate question about, you know, people who just aspire to a professional project management career, which, again, there there are some options to do that internally, but my sense would be those sorts of careers really benefit from Experience, broad experience. So that probably is something where sectors need to take a bit more of a of a role to say, we've got a cohort of people, in the same way that the NHS is a graduate program. That I need this person to have some exposure, perhaps to a major IT program, to a major capital program, to a major service redesign program, and I will do that in a in a very sort of structured way by picking, or because they need this to be phased in, in line with their career. And I think that's something where we, we we do well to move people between projects so that they get that kind of exposure. Um So I suppose that those are the sort of two sides of this. One is everyone having, having this more formally as part of their development. And, and then for those that really do choose it as a career, I think we've got a really responsibility to try and develop that and give them the experience and then to to sort of, as Craig suggests, the sort of corresponding uh, qualifications, uh, probably in a, in a, in certainly a sector, if not a kind of regional way to make absolutely sure they've, they've got a really thorough grounding and that could well include seconding them out into other industries. I absolutely think that would benefit people. Um, Brilliant. Thank you for that, Ralph. Noel, what would you like to add to that?
1: So, so I agree with, and I'd add some some stuff to it. So that. To me, there's a multitude of thoughts there. One is, is on the individual level. You really need to have at each section of, of their career path, whether they're project support, whether they're project manager, whether program manager, etc., some very core competencies on an individual level and need identified. And that's not the job description because because I think that's where we fail. We look at a job description. So that's what you got to know. It's really the detail behind the job description. It's the core thing we need them to be able to do. So so I think there's some core competencies on an individual level they need to develop the second piece I think is the, that we miss is the team competencies so so we got a set of core competencies but now we actually have the team competencies and that composition of the team from the project analyst to the project support person to the project manager the project program managers and how they as a team help deliver and what are the different things that they need to do you know to bring it in because that's the synergy that's going to create the success to it and then I think for me, there's another piece that the PMO has to start thinking about, you know, and I, and I look at that because it's like Craig talked about size before. So, if I look at the organization I'm in now, the team for PMO is actually not that big because you got a PMO that's got a transformation function and improvement function. So, what you need to be able to do is develop people on multitude of, of different skills and capabilities they need to do. So, what, you know, you end up having is you have a transformation manager with a very clear competencies that you need and improvement practice manager. very clear competence you need you might have somebody over here that's managing sequence or girth. you need to have them have a competency and it's that togetherness that you create that synergy so it's a multitude of things but I think the very two key things for me is individual competencies for for each of those not job descriptions get away from the job description the NHS needs to throw the job descriptions away the way they do it and then change that because I think it doesn't help them the the multitude the in the team competencies. And then the last piece that I absolutely am a believer in Ralph described is that is that getting people out of the, the sector or, or into other areas to develop their skill set. So one of the challenges that you know, Craig and I we talked about, he Craig talked about the workshop is, is we want to develop our team. So that includes me giving team members to Craig and Craig giving team members because we do it differently because Craig once at London Northwest, it's a different structure, it's a different operating model, etc. So they're going to have a different way to do it it and then we're going to have a different way to do it so it's, it's building those people's capabilities to be able to do that across and then also do it in different areas so don't just have people working in elective or non-elective have people working in the states have people working in it which i know a lot of times scares some of the traditional pmo and people like that because it is a different piece that they may have never been trained on but they need to understand it you know and then the other one i think we don't bring in much with it is is that od cultural shift ways of working development and stuff so so go Going, having to work in O.G. and H.R. to really understand those type of competencies they need to, because I think that's probably one of the, besides I.T. and having to do a lot of big I.T. development over the next few years to really change the way we operate, we also it's that ways of working, that cultural shift we need to help people go through in that journey, and so you need two different skill sets to do that. So that I mean that's my view. It's, it is a multitude,
2: um, and it's different layers.
0: So you have your hand raised, Craig. Would you like to go next?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't disagree with everything I've, I've heard so far, but I think that the challenge for any, the challenge for us, and the way that I see this. So I, I had a clinical background for twenty odd years, mm. uh, and so I I, I transitioned into a, into this world uh, from for my clinical world, and and it, it just it was staggering to me that there is a massive gap. <laughs> sitting in that sort of level of what I would argue is professionalization of the PMO function. Um, We can recognize what the PMO people do, but actually there's nothing in there so far that I've ever found that has the same level of rigor that you would have in the clinical world. So in the clinical world, there are some basic core competencies and there are frameworks published by royal colleges and uh, affiliated bodies, for example, that can help to outline and and Eventually, you know they then set the national standards as to what the training requirements should be for people. And we don't have anything to the best of my understanding, at any, at any scale in the same way for both transformation teams and PMO teams. Normally, it's learning by osmosis, learning by mm. exposure, and you pick a few tricks up here and there. You might go on the odd course and get the odd qualification under your belt. But actually, We are not systematic about how we support the development of our staff in the same way that we are with our clinical colleagues. And I would really like to really systematise that competency piece and actually get, as as Noel's sort of alluding to, get competencies set in place that actually, you know, reflect the areas in which you work. Um, and, And the last bit before Noel comes in on this, again, I was quite staggered by the lack of academic insights that a lot of my colleagues seem to have across the board no matter where i've worked um, on that pmo function and there is a lot of academic literature out there on transformation and change but again a lot of the individuals i've spoken to are completely unaware that there is this massive heft of academic literature and research in this field and again we're not bringing that in in a deliberate way into our teams to sort of support them we wouldn't let clinical teams get away with that. You wouldn't You wouldn't stick a doctor in front mm. of a patient who hasn't read the New England Journal of Medicine in the last 10 years. You know, we wouldn't allow our clinicians to operate on a non-academic basis, but we will allow our corporate teams to sort of fly by the seat of their pants and generally depend upon what they've sort of gleaned over the years.
0: Um, I absolutely love the comparison that you just made. I think it makes it very clear in black and white and kind of, creates that shock horror of kind of you won't let a doctor do that, so why? And I really like the way that you did that. Um I just want to go to Noel because I know Noel's had his hand raised.
1: So, so absolutely agree, with and I think that's why we're setting people up for failure in the instance of competencies, is that if we, 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 we think people, somebody's been successful over here being a program manager for this program, and then we go over here and we move them over here to the ICS, but because we haven't developed their core competencies and actually helped build their skill sets, they, they may fail because actually we think that they can go do that, so it's very similar to what Craig's saying, is that you, it's like taking a, you know, a, a, a me and putting me into a theater and making me think I can support a consultant doing, you know, surgery, I can't do that, you know, you know, so I think it's that very clear why that competency is important and very clear about how we expose people in different ways to development and don't just assume because somebody's worked a program that they're going to be successful and they need that coaching and mentoring. And we don't do that, you know, you know, even people like Craig and I and Ralph, we, we need coaching and mentoring sometimes when we look at stuff to go, okay, this is new boy. How are we going to do this elective recovery? We've come out of COVID. You know, it's a different t- t- time, different ways of working. So, so let's really have that conversation and how they do. It. But actually, there's a lot of people that look at it and say, "Well, you should already know it because you're here doing this." And that's actually not the same. And I, and I bring that up because that's where, where I think you see a lot of places fail is they they don't think that way. They think because somebody's moved up that hierarchy, they actually just should know. Well, actually, they they may not. I've got people that that have been in the NHS a long time. They've never done efficiencies and say cash saves. They never had to, so they have no skill set to understand how to take a budget, look at the lines, and understand where the potential opportunities are. They just don't know how to do that. So we need to continually do that as well. Ralph, would you like to add to that? I,
3: I suppose I, I I I can see that there's. Part of the discussion sort of highlighted what, what is so often the case in, in a kind of NHS PMO, and that, of course, you've got people in there who have really broad sets of skills. So, you know, uh, on on the one hand, if you were a purist and said this is absolutely here to ensure that the, the projects, the overarching programmes are well structured, uh, rigorously monitored, that we are really on top of, um, changes where they're necessary. Uh, we're allocating resources sensibly, etc. You know, we're highlighting problems well in advance and so on. Uh, they are full of people who, who kind of have these very diverse skills. So I I worry a little bit that we're all used to the fact that I've got people in a PMO who, who do fantastic analytics. Now, many of these trusts have got BI functions. So I guess the argument will be, I know I've got generally the most analytical of people in the organization often are sitting in a PMO because that's sort of often one of the characteristics that sort of attracts people into these kinds of roles. They're very orderly minds, very it's sort of uh, structured way of, of uh, approaching problems. So I'm, I very, very much agree with the points people made around uh, competencies. I have, uh, just from my own experience, uh, it may be in contrast to, to sort of clinical practice, which itself evolves over time. Of course, I think all of us have been in situations where as soon as you bring someone senior into your PMO, uh, it's almost inevitable that, that they'll sort of uh, start telling you, no, I wouldn't have structured the programme like this. I would structure it like that because whatever background they've got. So there is a little bit of a worry for me around the, it, 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 it's, you know, like many areas, it's not absolutely clear cut what the best approach is. And of course, the organisations will tend to adopt a particular Approach. It may last for a long time. It might last as long as whatever you know your latest big consultancy input has been. So there's a little bit of a challenge there around um, yeah, how how much do we need people who are very well grounded in the basics, and so we're back to competencies, but not necessarily as wedded to a particular sort of methodology uh, that. Uh, that they that they lack the flexibility and it comes back to the one of the comments Noel made right at the beginning actually for all of us even when you're on sort of complex multi-year programs you would expect there to not be a lot of changes in the fundamentals of course the context we work in changes massively rapidly all the time which covid is only the latest example so there are some there are some real challenges so i think yes we need to be yeah, no doubt, much more emphasis on what are the core competencies for individuals, for um, teams. Uh, we do need to be a little bit clear about let's not confuse. Well, in my mind, let's not confuse uh, competencies around, let's say, you know, analytical competencies around improvement competencies, which I know often happen or CIP skills that often happen within a PMO environment. But actually, you know, the PMO bit of what a CIP does, you know, my argument would be if you've got a really good set of PMO people, um, as I think we've had a few examples, if if someone turns around and say, actually, you are going to support and help deliver this IT project, estates project, or any other project, you should be able to turn your skills to that. If you need technical Mm -hmm. expertise, I get SMEs to do that. Of course, what often happens in NHS context is you have really a lot of sort of SME almost by proxy sitting within PMOs, because these are people who've seen an awful lot of things and generally have a very uh, sort of logical approach to how would I solve a problem, even if I don't have the expertise, who are the people that I need to bring into this team in order to sort of solve the problem that this organization has just presented me with. So so there's a kind of couple of couple of bits of my answer, I guess, or my question has been around It's not so clear cut. I do think the PMO skills themselves and competencies are something we need to be really clear with people as much as we can say to them. There's a whole array of other things that would absolutely help you be even better in a PMO context um, than you already are. But it's back to this business of trying to explain to our organisations what's the bit that the PMO really is there for. And then if you need it to do other things, it may be part of their job is to help you establish SME teams.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you for that, Ralph. Was there anything else like anyone had to add to that point? I thought that brought up a lot of conversation and definitely kind of um, sparked everyone's kind of curiosity and encouraged you to uh, revoke a response. That's really, really good. Um, so, sorry Craig, let's like
2: to go next? Yeah, I suppose this is a call out for any sort of people listening to this, um and hopefully there will be some um but you know i would be interested to see what the appetite was to develop you know a national faculty for transformation for example uh because we've seen these emerge over the years where, where individuals uh come through for data analytics and actually they are powerful as a collective as a way of bringing together things like training programs uh and uh, and having representation both at board level and national levels and so on. So I think that it would be really interesting to see what the appetite was from people about the development and professionalization to some degree, I use that in the broader sense. I don't want to upset people that they aren't professional, but obviously in the broader sense of the bringing together the the title, the roles, the functions, and sort of the the development frameworks that are required to systematize, systematize this in the same way that our colleagues in the clinical world have done for their professions
0: oh brilliant thank you for that greg uh, definitely making a good point there and definitely make a good point to our listeners as well so yeah um so last but not least let's go to your question ralph so ralph you said you know we have to find ourselves working in an environment of multiple and sometimes overlapping programs what approaches do you use to address the challenges this brings i.e duplication variable approaches lack of oversight etc Um ralph would you try to elaborate on that before we direct to the rest of the panel, please.
3: So we've we've alluded to this at a few different points that, that we work in an environment where certainly now um, more than ever as we we move into the integrated care systems and, and the integrated care partnerships where there are major new governance arrangements being established which include program management arrangements. Uh, whether they call that or, or not so you have these major programs being run and established and designed um, that's externally to our organizations they then come often with quite a bit of infrastructure so before you know it uh, they have generated you know major change work streams I'm just thinking in our own ICS uh, of the, the sort of themes around whether it's uh, the elective care transformation, whether it's the reconfiguration of acute services, as uh, and, and so on. And then within our own organisations, uh, I would say certainly now, I think as we get into probably another round of, of very, very tight financial environment, that we are going to very likely be seeing, you know, internal programs that are focused on cost improvement running in parallel with programs that are looking at the uh, recovery and the operating plan delivery. Uh, inevitably, there'll be improvement programs either woven into that or separate from that. So it's, it's a very, very common environment we find ourselves in that it, it, with the best will in the world, um, often a big priority comes in with and starts off with a brand new set of uh, governance arrangements and a new PMO function. And that's sort of the world we live in. And I guess for those of us that maybe sit within an organisation looking at at a a sort of a long term PMO presence and we see these, these other teams come and go, And depending on how, you know, how important they are in in terms of the immediate priorities, they can often completely take us. So I think all of us have been in an environment where turnaround or CIP teams come in, often externally, impose a massive uh, shock on the system, require an enormous sort of uh, amount of response, disappear, and then you're sort of back to, well, where was the original PMO people? Of course, we're going to turn back to them to ask them, you know, to, to kind of come back in. So, so a long way of saying we face a, an ongoing challenge of an environment where uh, unfortunately there isn't the sort of discipline to recognise that, okay, if there's a new thing we need to deliver, that should be done through the central team that we have established and we've, you know, allowed to, to really, uh, we're using it properly. So I shall stop there because I I've yet to answer that question in
2: any organisation I've worked in.
0: Brilliant, thank you for that, Ralph. Uh,
3: Noel, would you like to comment on that first?
2: What yeah. was, was there a question there, Ralph?
3: <laughs> <laughs> what, start again. Uh, okay, the short question is, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with this uh, uh, multiplicity
1: of PMOs? <laughs>
0: I was, wait, I was waiting for the little bit of answer between you so um sorry about so, go on
1: no that's okay. Right. so i think there's two things for me there ralph that, that are the challenges and i and i can give you examples so one is there's there, we've got to fix the communication so there's poor communication that we always talk about but actually there's there's ineffective communication because we're probably communicating somewhere but it's actually not trickling through and it's not good communication but for some reason as good as we are with technology, as good as we are with everything we use, we we still don't effectively communicate things that are going on in connecting dots. So in, in the system we're in, we've I've got some good examples where, you know, the system is doing a piece of work and they've done really great stuff. We're doing a piece of work and if I happen in circumstance in in one conversation, we found out we're duplicating efforts. We're going, wait a minute, let's just bring these together because you know let's not recreate the wheel here. Let's work together do these together because we're gonna be all tromping on the same you know, footprint. So let's actually work together. So I think there's something about creating a way we, we've got to get the effective communication. The other piece is, I absolutely agree with you, is that, that when things come in, it's usually things like IT, and I've got good examples of IT systems coming into our organization now. They've got to connect into the central because we understand a lot of things that are gonna cause them to fail or succeed. So we understand the stakeholders and how to manage the stakeholders. We understand how to present stuff in a way that they're going to, that's going to hit the mark. And and I've seen that in a couple of things, major things that we've launched. Is that actually we need to actually be part of that discussion and and, and whether or not we're the lead as far as the program management or acting as some type of advisory role to give them some more success. I think that's key. I think we've got to remove our shields to think protected that we're the PMO you know you know I'm happy if somebody wants to come in and and deliver a large you know um, EPR system pass system and do all the PMO work and I'm happy to sit on the side and provide the advice and guidance to help them succeed more I'm not honest to that because the honest thing we all need to do is we're trying to produce a better outcome for our patients and for our staff and that's what we're trying to improve so it's a challenge and it's a hard one and I've never seen it cracked anywhere. But I think to me that, like I said, go back into it's It's about getting effective communication going on and then second, it's about not being afraid that you're going to get your toes stepped on because guess what? There's a lot of work in the system to do, whether it's the which is which, whether it's the SIP we've got to do and deliver cash savings over the next five years, whether it's transformation, whether it's redevelopment stuff we've got going on, et cetera. There's so much to do. There's always going to be work but what we've got to do is, is fix those things that help us communicate and, and actually don't worry about stepping on people's toes. That's my thoughts. Thank you for that, Noel. Ralph, I see you have a handle. Would you like to comment?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're fantastic points and, and the communications one um, is, is spot on. And I can see there's certainly, to, in my mind, there is a, a kind of responsibility to to PMOs to find a way to sort of elegantly and succinctly communicate back to their organizations and particularly to the sort of decision makers. um, What is going on within these programs? Where are things to help signpost people? I I absolutely think that there's a huge opportunity there to really help organizations. I guess if you turn it round, um, they're there's often a, a kind of an opportunity miss, so that the point Noel made about that, you know, there's an advisory function that you can play within a PMO because you often are incredibly well tapped into what's going on in an organization. So people should, in a sense, be encouraged to uh, look to the PMO as a way of saying, okay, so this is the issue we're talking about. This is the problem that's come up. Before we do anything else, it, is this happening somewhere else? Or where where should we be pointing this particular question? Because before, certainly in many organizations, this is kind of instinctive, and this may be more of a, a provider kind of uh, characteristic of as soon as something is surfaced, we're, we're absolutely wanting to solve it immediately. So there's a tendency to kind of act rather than just to pause and say, okay, are we doing anything already that is potentially either answering this question or could just be redirected to help solve this particular problem. But, you know, so there's something around appreciating where your BMO can give you advice. I take the point that this isn't about wanting to run everything, but I think there's something around within an organization that there's some sort of criteria. If you're gonna set something new up, make sure that, as we said, it communicates its key information back to a central place. So it's not running in a silo. Um, But there's certainly tools that will help us kind of communicate better. And although uh, sort of IT promises to help with that, of course, there's that it was summed up for me with some years ago. I was working with the chief executive and and her message was, well, I, I, I need it to be really high level because I haven't got much time, but it's got to be incredibly granular. And I thought, well, it's a tricky thing to reconcile detail and summary. But that that is part of the challenge, I think, even of these IT systems. And how do you sort of support PMOs to really help people kind of have a very quick overview
2: of where 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 to
3: focus?
0: Thank you for that, Ralph. Craig, what would you like to add to that?
2: Yeah, I, I suppose I'm, I'm less. I, I, it doesn't surprise me that Ralph, as the engineer, likes everything nice and tidy uh, <laughs> and sequenced and, and ordered. Um, but you know. And whilst I am a big fan of that, equally, I think we come back to the conversation that Noel said at the beginning, we need to be flexible as well. Mm-hmm. There will always be short term parachuted in immediate projects. And the NHS lives on short termism. I mean, we all know that we work in it every day. You, li- you you only ever plan for the next finan- for this financial year. And there are very few programs that sort of go across multiple years. They're normally big capital investment programs, or maybe some change in an EPR. But most of the time, we are living on the short term. What can we do before the end of March? What are we going to do beginning of April to the end of March? And so, you know, we will always be left with these sort of uh, teams that are parachuted in uh, in the midst of something. And I think that we come back to the conversation around flexibility and uh, and adapting to that. Because either, you know, I, I see it as an opportunity either to tie in some of the work that I'm already doing into an additional team. So, for example, we're doing some work in the sector around the deployment of a platform which will help us with theatre scheduling. Now, that was always part of my programme whenever I was building mine, you know, pre-Christmas. So the fact that the sector is now doing something on this gives me an opportunity to link that piece of work into into this other one. And so it's about finding the linkages accelerating the work that you're doing through that opportunity Mm -hmm. um, and not seeing it necessarily as a threat but the internal governance of it has got to be robust it's the who is the sro for this and sometimes that can be a really insightful question just asking that simple question who owns this who is our sro for this piece of work and if everyone looks at each other not knowing who then those are the sorts of things that can help um understand the structural alignments because if no one owns it then that should give you some red flags that actually mm. it, it is running a bit wild or they've wandered away from it or they've left the organization and the meetings are still just happening so I don't mind the fact that there is sometimes overlap and duplicity around some of the work because some of that's just about scale and proportion hopefully we're not duplicating the exact same work though
0: brilliant thank you for that great Ralph anything I'd say about that
3: I mean, they you know they' are good points, and it's it's a pretty valid challenge because, in a sense, that the sort of PMO is there to support the organization. and you know if 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 if, uh, if something is put in place, it's kind of our job to make sure that we we just sort of do our best to kind of help it plug into the existing work that's going on. and And back to the point I made before, there's there's a real value to the. To the signposting so you know the 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 flip side of that is to go well I, I i realize that we're doing a whole lot of work in theaters hang on a minute there's a major program kicking off in the sector we need to participate in that and and the sort of issue about the sros and so on that does really highlight that uh, i i get that everyone's got a very large number of things on their plate so again there's something around uh, i guess building the understanding of, of where the PMO can help the leadership teams as well in that kind of advisory way. So, okay, it, you know, by looking at what's going on at the moment, we can tell you, actually, this is one where it probably is best to hold off for a couple of months because there is a sector programme into which, which will answer this, help you answer, the, address this question, you know, and, and to be seen as a, as a pretty honest bunch of people to say, okay, here are opportunities, here are the best, this is probably the best place to to handle this, or even in some cases, these are the best people to own projects. If someone's looking around for who should be the SRO, we're often pretty well placed to say, who's the person who's likely to be in the best position to actually help get this project moving?
0: Thank you, Ralph. Craig, I see you have your hand on the to go next.
2: Yeah, so, so I agree with, with everything Ralph said, and maybe this comes back to the point and Noel, I think, is probably feeling the pressure more than Ralph and I at the minute with with the situation in Hillingdon, is that things can become overwhelming very quickly for our executive colleagues. And so we come back to my sort of gentle push on this about maybe the PMO of the future has a, a bit more of a bite or some more teeth, because one of the things I think a good PMO can do is help thin down those priorities so that, you know, one individual who's an exec, the last thing you want is for them to be the SRO for 15 projects, because they can't do 15 projects. It's ridiculous. A good PMO should be able to say, actually, you can have three. We'll give you three projects that you have to do really well, but choose out of the 15, choose which three you're going to do. And I suppose that's the interaction. And coming back to Ralph's point about the, sometimes the chaos Sometimes the chaos is because we we take 15 things on mm. instead of saying we'll do three and just do three really well. And so, you know, so maybe the PMO of the future has some teeth. Maybe the PMO of the future has a clear development framework and maybe to help limit some of the noise. A good PMO can be a good advisor to help prioritize what the key issues should be that their SROs are focusing on.
0: Brilliant, thank you for that, Craig. No, you've been quite quiet for a while, seeing your head nodding, is anything you'd like to add?
2: No, I think
1: Craig's right. I think there's some, thing, the, the thing that is a trend in the NHS is we will start the year with a very nice plan to say we're going to do these five things. And I and we'll start that on 1 April. By 1 May, those five things will have grown into 30. And, 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 the, and instead of, you know, doing five things well, we'll try to do 30 things and just try to make them across the line. And I think that's a very key thing that we've got to get away from. We've got to commit to the plan and stick to the plan. If, it, if if whatever we're doing in that plan, those five things, if one of them's going off and it's not working, well, we just need to stop it, as Craig said earlier. I think there's also absolutely, if you look at it, if I if I was to call the executives at the table, you know, I've got six executives and I, think two of them hold all the work you know really hold the the between all the stuff we're doing transformation sip etc there's two of them that hold 95 part, percent of the the stick. And that's not the right way. It needs to be be spread out evenly so they can get the right attention from the executives because the executives are key to the success or the srs are key to the success of the delivery of those programs. And in in the PMO and the people doing the programs need that vision and that support because if you don't have clarity of vision, we know. If we don't really have clarity of purpose, clarity of vision right off the start and, and continually thread through, that those programs tend to fail. So I think you've got to do that. The organizations have got have got to do less. And that includes SIP. So instead of trying to do a hundred, you know, things on SIP because you need this money, you, you focus on the five big things and you deliver them well. Then you do go after five more, and then you go after five more. That's how you build that success instead of trying to do everything at once. We also in that one of the things for me that's in that is starting to I've been thinking about as I'm sitting here is is how do we empower staff to do a lot of this themselves so they don't just they don't always need a pmo to do this stuff for them if we can empower staff to have a have a basic understanding of how to set a project up how to you know use an a3 how to do the pdsa and those things we can do a lot of continuous and quality improvement on a daily basis without ever touching the pmo and the pmo can set in the background and be a real advice and guidance to them to help them continually along the process if we can do that stuff and synergize those efforts we will move a lot quicker because there's an old adage that I would like to use you know that's a lot of small fishes that become one big whale you know after when you add them up you know you know because they're successful but instead of trying to be one big whale right away when you're not ready and you're not in that position I think that's the key so so that that's what I would add
0: oh, brilliant thank you for that no is there anything else anyone would like to add to that point no Brilliant. Uh, That is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for taking part in the podcast. Um, I think definitely the fact that you all kind of know each other, that's definitely helped for the conversation. I felt like as though I've just been sat in the background quite quiet. um, I didn't know quite a lot about PMO myself. So, you know, it was really good to listen to you guys um, for your points. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed it.